नमस्कार जब का माधव धनबाद से खदान क्षेत्र की जल की कहानी पर एक कविता बोल रहा हूँ सोनो मित्र बता रहा हूँ खदान क्षेत्र की जल की तलाब है सूखा कुआ है सूखा बाजी लगी है जान We now live in the age called the Anthropocene. We have left and continue to leave an indelible human mark on the planet, and we are irrevocably changing it. Our progress is to the detriment of other species, and many say to ourselves. Needless to say, then that we have a complicated relationship with the environment. Welcome to In the Field, a show about India and development, hosted by Radhika Vishwanathan and Samyukta Varma. In the Field is supported by Rohini Nilekani Philanthropies. The idea of environmentalism is typically articulated as a movement to curb economic development and its harmful effects on the habitats of plant and animal species. It's also expressed as the fear of losing access to pristine nature. with the understanding that human consumption is a threat to the earth's resources views such as these are born from the fear of what our lives and lifestyles and modes of development are doing to the health of the planet but humans too are part of the system part of nature and while the environment affects us all there are many who are disproportionately affected In this episode, we attempt to connect the dots between the work being done to address the serious aspects of environmental negligence on vulnerable people with more familiar brands of environmentalism to find out how to make this work more meaningful. 30 years ago it was driven by by charismatic conservationists that had connections in Delhi. Okay. Uh powerful voices that could call, you know, Mrs. Gandhi's office and say, you know, we have to do something about tiger conservation or you know whatever it was right and uh, so there was a uh, you know i th- i think that conservation in india was very nepotistic 30 years ago and it's become massively more democratic uh, because not just because of conservation itself having a wider constituency but also because of the rights movement you know the forest rights act and all of that has sort of brought a much much bigger community into the into the debate and your average master student of conservation today compared to even 10 years ago may not believe in rights but fully recognizes that they cannot get get their job done without engaging with people that's our old friend karthik shankar the director of atri or the Ashoka Trust for Research in Ecology and the Environment whom we met and spoke with way back in episode 2 he is talking about how indira gandhi is often credited for her interest and focus on environmental issues and conservation specifically her role in pushing through the wildlife protection act of 1972 however many also point to the elitism of the leaders who shaped our early environmental laws the wildlife protection act for instance sought to limit access to protected areas for the sake of preserving the habitat of endangered animals but the intention of conservation and preservation of wildlife was placed over and without much acknowledgement of the rights of the adivasi people who also lived and relied on those areas for livelihoods and food security yet 1972 was a landmark year for environmental conservation in india up until then most environmental governance was a remnant or legacy of the colonial period where the british pretty much took whatever they could from india's rich biodiversity and displaced communities for their development the indian state inherited this legacy and unfortunately continued in the same vein 
and many colonial hangovers have only very recently been amended, such as the Land Acquisition Act of 1894, which only became the Right to Fair Compensation and Transparency Land Acquisition, Rehabilitation and Resettlement Act in 2013. After 1972, there was a rush of environmental laws. The Water Prevention and Control of Pollution Act of 1974, the Air Prevention and Control of Pollution Act of 1981, and finally the Environmental Protection Act in 1986. At the same time, powerful social and environmental movements like Chipko, Narmada Bachao Andolan, or Apiko shaped how we see development and the environment. They pushed our consciousness ahead forcing us to reckon with the devastating effects of projects done in the name of development on people, often poor people, such as big dams intended to bring water and support farmers, mines that were meant to drive industry, and the roads that were meant to bring economic growth to the farthest afield. Many of these social movements stalled or arrested big projects for a while, And events like what happened in Bhopal in 1984 made us think about environmental justice. It is one of India's biggest tragedies. So it's actually not environment versus development. It's environment and development are working, you know, together and privileging certain sections of society and disenfranchising, disempowering other sections of society. So it's really, you know, and it's been very conveniently by the by people that are in the, in the in the development sector because of you know political and economic power have framed it even the current government frames it as environment versus development but it's really not environmental environment versus development which is why i like the term environmental justice even more than social justice because it then it sort of draws the line and says you know there's a form of justices that a bunch of people across the world need and that's being denied them by certain social economic developmental environmental processes and that's what needs to be addressed the term environmental justice has its origins in the united states in a case about the extent to which poor black people were bearing the brunt of sanitation waste and pollution and it is about inequality social inequality and also the disproportionate burden of development decisions and their environmental impact that is borne by the poor and marginalized By the 1990s and the start of liberalization, India had a lot of development projects. And environmental regulation was by that time slowly being enforced to support those communities who were getting the short end of the stick, to address the price that they were paying for development with their land, livelihoods and health. This was also when people began questioning the validity of trickle down theories. The system for environmental approvals was came up in the 1990s and once that came up a lot of the work done by civil society by activists has actually uh, you know sort of used that as the centerpiece and and raised questions about uh, you know how these projects are decided upon who decides these projects and if these projects are given approvals who does the burden fall on and who bears the benefits of these projects so the so this this uh, this environmental approval system has become the basis around which a lot of the big questions are asked i think one of the things i wanted to add to what manju was saying is that the idea of environment regulation in the, the early 90s was introduced many parts of the world to try and bridge this gap is to to actually to address the environmental justice problems the idea was that economies are going to liberalize you will also have environment regulation that will put in place lots of safeguards and what if those safeguards are met 
these problems are not going to arise. Now, what we were interested in trying to understand around 2008-2009 is, is this really happening? About 15 years of environment regulation in India, uh, is this really happening? We have hundreds of projects that have been set up. Is this really happening? So we did a study in 2009 to figure, figure out are the safeguards actually being met? Uh, how is the government really keeping records? And at that point in time, we realized that the non-compliance was close to 90%. Kanchi Kohli and her colleague Manju Menon work with an international organization called Namati and the Center for Policy Research in Delhi, whose focus is on environmental justice and empowering local communities through environmental law. As Kanchi suggests, in India, we have a big environmental justice debt to deal with. Namati tries to address this imbalance by training local people on the law, its language, its processes and the system. This know-how is an important enabler and educator not to confront or reject projects, but to help communities ensure due processes are followed. Their work also illustrates that courts are not the only places where the law can be used. So, for example, while many development projects are required by law to conduct environmental impact assessments, many communities don't know of them or know how to participate in them, or important documents are published only in English, or communities don't even know how to navigate the system or even which authority to approach. Actually, I'm a bywall collector. Marathi Gauda is a legal foot soldier for Namati, a clan fisherman from the southern coastal district of Uttara, Canada, where the Aganashini River flows. Marathi found that in the eyes of the law, clam harvesting was placed in a limbo between fishing and farming, and as a result, his community was not eligible for life insurance, which they wanted given the risks associated with the job. Understanding the law and forming a collective and then a union and knowing which door to knock on, here the district administration and the fisheries department helped them get an order issued which treated clam harvesters as fishermen and they were now eligible for the same rights and entitlements as them. Gauda now works with other local communities along the western coastline where development is changing the local landscape. We have had environmental issues plague Indian cities for decades, and there have been people working on these issues for years. But of late, many Indian cities have been arrested by a more dramatic visual manifestation of accumulated poor environmental decision-making, flooding cities, foaming lakes, steaming garbage, and open sewers. We're finally unable to literally shut our eyes from these visual signifiers of long-term environmental negligence. And alongside this, and partly as a reaction, we're seeing a new kind of environmentalism emerge. One that appears to be driven quite strongly by the urban middle classes, who are increasingly concerned with the combined forces of what they see as poor planning, corruption, and overconsumption. One also driven by the middle class seeing an inadequacy in the executive to address these issues. We are all very consumption oriented. So I want to consume the lake. I want to go there and I want to run so that I can train for my Bombay Marathon. I want to go there to take photographs and then I can put it up on my Facebook page and get some likes or sell it. I want my children to know what nature is so I will bring them once a week and this thing. I want family time so I have this. That's Priya Ramsavan, 
a citizen activist and documentary filmmaker who settled in the southeastern corner of Bangalore, the IT hub of the city. Priya is a co-founder of one of the earliest citizen-led lake rejuvenation groups in Bangalore, and she speaks quite openly and candidly about the journey taken to revive and take ownership of a network of urban lakes in the Sarjapur area. Bangalore, for those unfamiliar with the erstwhile garden city, grew over the centuries over a network of over 250 man-made lakes or irrigation tanks that sustain the city. Today the city is a perfect example of poor urban development. Nearly all these lakes have been built over or have turned into sewagey, swampy, diseased-filled closed tanks. Priya tells us about how she began her work. She befriended some local people who helped her navigate the nitty-gritties. Which department to approach? The municipal authority, the city development authority, the village panchayat, the tehsildar, the minor irrigation department? She took their help to go to government offices and to get topo maps. Very often the middle class isn't taught this kind of hands-on civics. It's very subtle, but what we're inherently taught is to mistrust the government and all its gears and machinery and to believe in our ability to take control. And this she says is because we often think we know better. I speak from a privileged background. Uh you are told that oh, you know, as much as possible don't deal with the government. Um and so you you have this natural sort of barrier thinking oh, they must all be uh people that we won't be able to deal with they are either corrupt or bureaucratic which is the two things that we always know when we talk about government but you never are told that there are some very robust systems uh because the robust systems are never talked about in your civics lesson you know they're just like oh there is a municipality there is one corporator there is one ward committee whatever right you're only seeing the problems so um so yes and so it was a very very pleasant uh awakening for me to go to the municipality and to meet an officer like Mr Satish um who was the chief engineer of lakes and i felt like i was a bigoted person to begin with because when i went in there i was ready to charge and to say okay look you know uh, i see that there is this lake and it's polluted and when you go to the table which is how we all go to the table when you go to the table from a position of what you think is a power of knowledge and actually to be um realistic and humble enough to accept that no you were you know in f- coming from a position of just privilege and nothing else opens your mind up to see how much scope there is in the system and i think i'm very grateful in this whole process to have actually been able to discover that about myself and also about our systems that are robust priya makes an important distinction between privilege and knowledge the middle class does have a very important role to play as we see across cities in india like bangalore citizens have been instrumental in reviving and taking ownership of public natural commons and quite effectively so this privilege affords access and the ability to convene to take risks and to stick it through the tough times and finally the ability to throw a lot of time at the problem we tend to think that our real skill is our knowledge but perhaps it is in fact our ability to persevere to engage to bring stakeholders together even priya admits that being truly inclusive is difficult but it is non-negotiable absolutely necessary her group consulted with many people including those who are not from the big apartment buildings around it like the ones who use the lake to forage or bring their cattle to bathe and despite some positive results she is thoughtful 
people start thinking about um, things as you know have start having this savior complex that they feel like they're here to save something and do do something and so they don't seek those opinions so i think if the if if one were to say like i look at myself and i'm not saying this with humility at all i'm not a humble person but i say it because if i see myself as a sutradhar then i know that i am here only to connect the dots and the dots need to be connected by the dots are the people who have more knowledge than i and i think a lot of a lot of government officers or elected officials or even non-profits and ngos and all of that think of themselves as being the center of things and when you when you go with that sort of thinking like you know you're the central spoke in a wheel then it's a very different kind of approach whereas if you think it's a long thread and you just are weaving through then i think it's a very different kind of approach in the urban context in india we have to remember that environmental justice is a persistent issue that distinguishes itself from what we're familiar with such as the fight for a clean lake or clean air for the greater common good it's about who bears the burden of the economic systems we're built around the environment and decisions we make to manage it such as the dalit sanitation workers dying in manholes the location of big polluting industries and the people who live by the rivers and lakes that they destroy and the people whose livelihoods still depend heavily on rapidly shrinking natural spaces in the cities like cattle owners and fishermen it's about where the landfill facilities located and it's about the villagers who live by it here's how leo saldana head of the environment support group a group that works on environmental justice puts it leo is a tireless activist constantly fighting for the underdog and is well respected for his work on environmental judicial activism we caught up with him in his office in south bangalore so, you know we work with uh, porokarnikas uh, from 1999 to 2000 till now and we worked with pora karmikas we worked did not work on solid waste management you, i want to make that distinction because a lot of people say oh you work on waste management issue okay yes in a sense but we worked with pora karmikas who were managing the waste and what we found was the dominance of caste in sustaining the extraordinary and atrocious violence that caste begets and was institutionalized in our system almost all of them are madigas who came from uh, andhra pradesh and so on and for the third generation in the late 90s from whenever the municipality was started there was a third generation the municipality was started in 1920s or something they were hired children grandchildren were still sweepers and they said once into this loop you can never get out because we had kept the pay scales low the conditions bad they were not treated as factory workers they were not allowed to unionize if they were unionized it was crushed and we exploited them to keep our cities clean so when we say bangalore was looking great and all that it's because we used caste and employed caste and our even the city planning reflects the fact that caste played a very strong role our urban environments have been paid for by communities who have historically and for generations been denied rights and entitlements the redressal of inequalities like this is crucial to achieving environmental justice to breaking the cycle but these do not form the bulk of our understanding of urban environmental issues and working towards a notion of improving the environment for a greater good as many well-intentioned environmental groups are attempting to do won't really address this problem it's it's a form of environmental action that's aimed at aesthetic and visual purification but not necessarily by a physical improvement Uh, about blaming the poor for for filth 
and and pollution, but not actually tackling the primary causes of it, right? That's Asher Gertner, an urban geographer and director of the South Asia Studies Program at Rutgers University, speaking about the idea of bourgeois environmentalism, which seems to be a big driving force in the number of public interest litigations filed on environmental grounds in the courts. Linked to the broader argument of bourgeois environmentalism is the important angle of how, what and whose language is used to interpret environmental law. Through his work, Asher studied how slum resettlements in Delhi in the 80s and 90s were often ordered by the judiciary, which would, in responding to cases, use another colonially run nuisance law to remove illegal settlements. This perception of nuisance was primarily shaped by middle-class resident welfare associations and their perceptions of cleanliness and propriety, which labeled slums, through common conversations, as stinky, dirty, smelly or unwanted. But the use of this language, when used in this way, can quickly lead to the codification of these subjective perceptions, giving them statutory grounding within the courts, and finally resulting in waves of demolition orders, which he argues were based less on the illegality of land use and more on the aesthetic incongruity. The National Green Tribunal was set up in 2010 under Article 21 to fast-track judicial litigations that relate to environmental issues. Recognizing the weak enforcement of environmental laws in India, the NGT has the power to hear civil cases relating to environmental issues, to impose sentences and fines, and take action against companies and governments. Through his research looking at the law and the language of judgments, Asher points out that the way in which the courts define the category of life may be shifting, particularly when it comes to widespread environmental problems like water or air pollution. He uses the example of the recent air pollution crisis in and around Delhi to explain. If historically the right to life has been something that within public interest litigation has been mobilized through a defense of the life of individuals, so I, the petitioner, have my life, my life is threatened by, say, a local pollution source, then the Supreme Court intervenes to protect that particular citizen's life. If not an individual, then the life, the category of life, is that of a discrete group of individuals, right? The neighborhood of Sukhdev Bihar in, in South Delhi is adjoining or abuts um, the Okla Waste Energy Plant. They, their life is threatened by the existence of this waste energy plant. But what's happening now in a context of this atmospheric crisis, this airpocalypse, is that all life becomes threatened. And what I've noticed is that there's a way in which, I guess you would say, kind of epidemiological frameworks are drifting into the space of, 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 of jurisprudence. In other words, people are in the way that life gets framed is not in terms of the life of you or me or a discrete group of people. It instead references um, the aggregate welfare, the aggregate the aggregate health of the Indian lung. The Indian lung becomes the category of life or the status of unborn fetuses or overall asthmatic risk. This is the this becomes the category of life. So is this perhaps a reflection of where we are as a society? Are we at a tipping point? And if yes, Asha sees two ways this can go forward. Um, a number of, of, of politically progressive or politically regressive uh, yeah. potentialities wrapped up with it. The progressive ones are that 
Of course, if that leads to general air pollution action that reduces air pollution levels, then everyone benefits. All breathers will collectively benefit from that, right? It's a kind of we're all in this together, we all make up life type of thing. On the other hand, though, uh, there, there's also a possibility that particular groups will be able to self-represent as the most important for the city, most important to the category of life. And, and the, one of the ways that I see this sort of playing out is this kind of techno-utopian vision that says that the solution isn't to get people to drive cars less or a social change. The solution is um, through technology. We can get high-end air, air purifiers. They can be installed in homes, offices, and cars. We can get fancy air pollution masks. Basically, we can we can build kind of segregated atmospheres where the rich can be sequestered off um, in their pure air and their bubbles, and the rest sort of suffer in the billowing diesel exhaust that the rich produce in their energy intensive needs of you know running air conditioners and 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 air purifiers. We've seen this urge to sequester away from the masses play itself out many times when it comes to water, roads, amenities, and now perhaps even air. Will this crisis prompt a kind of collective reckoning, or does it promote a further segregation, this urge to move in and hide ourselves inside the bubble? And what's unique and interesting about it, um, from a research perspective, is that air is, of course, this greatest of commons. We all share in it. Um, the feminist theorist Luz Irigaray has written quite a lot about breath being this fundamental humanist basis of connection and empathy that we all share in it, and that the struggle for air is in fact the first and primary form of kind of commoning, of taking part in a collective. Environmental issues are increasingly taking center stage or grabbing the headlines. We see more and more stories in the news or on our WhatsApp feeds, or on Facebook groups about flyovers that are going to destroy tree cover, polluted lakes like the ones that frequently catch fire in our town, Bangalore, air pollution, and of course the dreaded garbage problem that plagues every city. And we're seeing with it a new wave of urban environmentalism with citizen groups organizing to take action on environmental issues and often looking to the courts for remedies. We're also seeing more citizens making consumer choices that are motivated by environmental concerns, either for their health or because of its role in preserving biodiversity and farmer livelihoods. However, there is still a gap between the fight for a greater common good and the more specific issues that are about environmental justice, such as the communities who work with Namathi and whose lives and livelihoods have been victims of large development and who are fighting for rights to clean water or their entitlements from the government. And the question we want to figure out the answer to is how to get these movements to meet. Ultimately, our best chance to address environmental problems is at the local level, where they play out, be they environmental justice issues or ones that affect the greater common good. And this is very, very hard. But we're reaching a tipping point in terms of how our cumulative actions have affected the planet, detrimentally, and we have to force ourselves to engage more inclusively and live the civics we've learned. And that's the end of the show. Thank you for listening. And with apologies for my scratchy throat, many thanks to our ensemble cast. Asha Gertner, Leo Saldana, Priya Ram Suban, 
Kartik Shankar, Manju Menon and Kanchi Kohli, Mahabaleshwar Hegde, Marathi Gowda and Vinod. And thanks to Gramwani for the opening clip. In the Field is produced and hosted by Radhika Vishwanathan and Samyukta Varma. Priya Desai is our editor. Our music is made by Hollis Coates. Third Eye Recording Studio does the sound. We are supported by Rohini Nilekiri Philanthropies. And so, until next time, subscribe for updates on our website and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We are at In The Field India. <laughs>